my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Coming In. My name is Claire Gurley. I'm really excited that you're here. If this is your first time listening with us, Coming In is a podcast about gender, sex, and sexuality. Um, We are coming from a place of curiosity, and we are leaving judgment at the door. Um, I'm so happy that everyone is coming with their own perspectives and experiences, and I hope that um, listening to this podcast can introduce you to some more perspectives and experiences. I was also asked recently if I was aware that coming in could be um, a sex joke, Um, and to that I say, how dare you think that I don't think it's a sex joke? Um, It's absolutely a sex pun. Yes, it's about like coming into ourselves rather than coming out, having it be a personal experience, getting to know ourselves. I've said that in the past. However, it's also a funny sex joke. So yes, I know that. Thank you very much. Um, Coming in is also more than a podcast. I am also collaborating with each of these podcast guests on works of art that are going to be displayed in a gallery show at the beginning of March. You can find all the details for that on our Instagram. That is at coming in project. Um, You can check out all of the artwork and um, some more fun stuff um, to kind of keep conversation and discussion rolling. Again, that is at Coming In Project on Instagram. Today is a really special episode. I feel like I do say that every time, but it's, it's just, you guys, this is a really special conversation. I felt really honored and humbled to be part of it. Um, and I feel honored and humbled to get to share it as well and for you all to be part of it as well. Today I'm sitting down with a dear friend of mine, um, Sam Bone. He is an incredible person. Um, I am interviewing him about his experience as a trans man and he is going to share a lot more about like life and um, what it's like to just be a person alive. So it's not just about transition also because people are so much more than their, um, gender identity. But I just, I learned so much from sitting with Sam for this time. And I think that you all will too. Um, it's impossible not to love him. So I hope you enjoy and here we go. Awesome. So I'm here with Sam. Sam, hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I know Sam because Sam is engaged to my wonderful sibling. Uh, so Sam is basically part of my family. But uh, Sam, what do you who, who who are you? Tell us about yourself. Well, my name's Sam. Um, I've been living in Tennessee for five and a half years now, and had meant to leave after one, but then I met somebody really great, and I was like, okay, I'll say. Um, but I am a trans man. Um, and if you were to describe my sexuality, it would be a spectrum, certainly, like most people. Um, but yeah, I've been with my partner now for three and a half years, engaged for almost one. That anniversary is in two weeks. Ah! Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> I have only known you as as Sam, as mm-hmm. the man that you are. I haven't known you presenting any other way. So I'm really excited to kind of hear about your story because I haven't even, I don't <laughs> even know a lot of this stuff that I'm about to ask. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to get into it. But a question that I've been asking everyone just to really start us off on a vulnerable note <laughs> is um, how did you first learn about sex? 
That's a really good question. And it took some thinking for me to remember how I had heard about sex. Because I feel like growing up, because I wasn't really, I mean, I was raised by my parents, but they were always at work. So I was with a babysitter 85% of the time. Um, and it wasn't talked about in that household, but like it was talked about in the sense that like, oh, the older women are having babies. And like, so as a kid, you kind of hear about it in that sort of context, but there was no real education about it. And my first like real down and dirty education is my dad and I were taking a road trip, road trip from California to Colorado. And we were in the middle of the desert. Closest town was over a hundred miles away. He's like, okay, we're going to have the sex talk now. <laughs> Where you can't run. <laughs> yeah. That was the intent. Yeah. I could not run. And he, he's an incredibly intelligent guy. So it was all very science based. And like, I remember he said ejaculation and I lost my mind. <laughs> Cause I was, 12 ish. Um, so yeah, I was fortunate enough that he gave me just a very scientific, like, this is what you need to know. This is how these things work. But there was no emotional education to sex by any means. Um, but being from California, I was set up a little bit better in my high school. We covered sex ed somewhat in health class, but they had a program through Planned Parenthood where people from Planned Parenthood came and taught a handful of students about like just really in-depth two-day training on sex education, uh, domestic violence, those kind of connected issues. And then the students would go and present that to health classes. Um, so I had a really good education around like the science behind sex, but I didn't know queer sex was a thing until ooh, 16, 17, but I also didn't really know queer people. Yeah. So even in California, which we're recording this in Tennessee, where mm -hmm. queer people are, they're here, we are mm -hmm. here, but in terms of visibility, a little bit harder to just come by, mm -hmm. especially like. For me, growing up in the South, I didn't feel like I didn't meet a queer person until definitely into like middle and high school. Mm -hmm. um, what did you feel like you had a similar experience even in California? I mean, I guess I would expect it to be different, but that doesn't necessarily mean it would be. Right. And, you know, where I grew up, it was on the more conservative side. Like it's very agriculture based um, old families and my family specifically my mom it's like it's fine for other people to be queer but like we don't really talk about it in this house um but she's also from texas so kind of that full circle southern moment um and so like i knew they existed and like interacted with them um but it was very much not okay in our house yeah so growing up did you remember having like a sense of, even if you maybe didn't have the language for it, because you may not have known a lot about queerness, but like, did you have a sense of gender dysphoria? Do you remember when that kind of came on um, when you were growing up? Yeah, so I, I was a ball of anxieties just constantly through my childhood and like always felt very different. And my mom, you know, 
as moms do, like set me up in the girl clothes, Pocahontas t-shirts, like the whole nine <laughs> yards. And I just always just full-heartedly rejected it, even from toddler age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the first moments looking back that I can clearly remember, like, oh, this girl label does not work for me, was sixth grade promotion. And it was just painful to find clothes that I liked, especially, you know, for nicer events. And we went to Lane Bryant of all places. <laughs> Every 12-year-old's dream. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, went to Lane Bryant and got this white button-up, kind of a little more open, feminine cut, and this just awful, awful jean skirt. And yeah, it was not cute. Oh, no. And I remember telling my mom, like, this isn't right. I feel like a fraud. And like, what, what was I then? 11? What 11 year old is supposed to feel like a fraud? Um, And so, yeah, I really knew that I didn't have any sort of language around it, but I knew I felt different in all of the ways young women described how they felt around me. I just had no concept of. Um, and really took that feeling of isolation and turned it inward because it was a lot easier to turn all those things inward than to say the, the words out loud. Yeah. And I don't think I, I was 23 before I could even say the words I'm trans or like begin to communicate about that type of thing. Um, but I had... A decent trans education. I dated a trans man in high school when we were 16, 17, 18. Um, so I definitely, that was a huge eye opener for me in the beginning of being able to have language, being introduced to the L word. Maybe not the best education, but it was certainly my first. I was there, you know, it's something. It was It was there. And that, that was the biggest thing, having access to something about like that. Um, so yeah, it, and when I came out as trans to my parents, it, it went better than when I came out as queer. Um, cause I was able to vomit the words at the dinner table and run away <laughs> as I do. Yeah. When did you come out as queer? I, 16. Okay. Um, that was an experience that has stuck with me. Um, because I never said the words, like I couldn't say those words. Um, and all the words I had access to didn't feel right. Because I wasn't a lesbian, because he's a trans man, but I wasn't that straight, but I wasn't all these other things. Um, and I had just won this really big election in high school, and I was like, okay, if I win this position, I'm going to tell my mom, because the two things are going to cancel out, right? <laughs> like, this really good thing, and this thing she's going to say is really negative, and it'll be neutral, right? Because that's how feelings work. <laughs> um, and she just reacted extremely poorly to it and had this full-blown meltdown, and it was, like, a couple of years before we really were able to get onto the same page again. Um, so I assume everybody was going to react that way about everything. Like if you're not cishet, then it's going to be this full blown thing. Um, so that kept me from dealing with those feelings. It, it certainly delayed it. Would you say that you saw that reaction from a lot of the other people in your life or 
No. Not even a tiny bit. Yeah. Um, and I was shocked. Like my dad, he's not going to say how he feels about it anyways. So I'm not going to get any sort of reaction there. Um, but the first person that I told that these gender identity issues were coming up for me was somehow a white cis boy from Iowa. And he, we were on a team together and I told him and out of anybody I thought would react poorly, somebody who has no experience around queer people. And he's told me he has none. Um, and it was just any, everything I could have needed in that point, in that moment. Um, he was, he was just open and said, you know, great, tell me more. And I didn't, at that point, wasn't able to share more. And just being able to get the words out to somebody was a game changer. Yeah. Because it's true that it's possible that those people are out there that are going to respond negatively. That, you're, mm -hmm. that It's possible for a lot of people that that fear that their parents will respond in that way could happen. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that there are so many people out there that are not going to respond that way right. that are going to respond with openness and love and acceptance um and it's kind of beautiful that you have it's horrible that you had to go through right. the bad right. one but that you you can recognize that both um existed mm -hmm. um, yeah i think we have a lot of fear as queer people saying the words initially mm -hmm. of like having it come out of our mouths mm -hmm. um even when you know it so like concretely inside. And then I think just to have that one person and it's so interesting that it's usually not the person you expect <laughs> um, right. be right. so like accepting and, and open toward it. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about what coming out looked like for you? Like when you, were 23, like what brought you to the point of, okay, this is it. I've, I've you know, had enough or mm -hmm. what, what, yeah. In your, in your words, like. Yeah. So really what was a tipping point for me was my last suicide attempt. Mm. Um, I was living abroad the year after college. I lived in Ghana and I, I had already lived longer than I had expected to. Because I never in my wildest dreams, even from a young kid, thought I'd live past college. Because um, that's what everybody tells you. They say, good, good grades in high school, go to college. But they don't really say anything after that. Like, what do I do next? As a recent college graduate, <laughs> I understand. Right, right. And that whole identity crisis. Yeah. Um, so i was living abroad i had done this last big thing that i wanted to do it's like all right this is it and i attempted suicide there um and you know very fortunate now that i had people around me that recognized that something was wrong and got me help um but it was in the days after that that i realized like there is more life to live after this um so I had begun while I was there starting to identify like what these feelings inside of me can't just be anger. Like there has to be something more than that. Um, and 
while I was there, I that was when I told the first person that I think I'm having these gender identity issues. And we finished out our year there, came home, and I started to realize, like, if I want to continue to live a life, I can't continue to hide. Because that's the anger I feel. It, I'll just be in a cycle of that and get back to the point that I had been. Um, so the first time I ever said the words I'm trans out loud at all was to my dog. Um, cause you know, he's never going to react poorly. <laughs> um, and it was pretty quickly after that, that I was able to say, okay, this is something going on with me. And I was dating somebody at the time, um, who was very receptive and, very open and I was on a rugby team who was also very accepting and very kind and made changes as quickly as possible. And you know, when you first come out, people are gonna make mistakes. People are gonna make mistakes no matter what. And I've been out, it'll be, it was five years in October and things still happen. Like it, it just happens. Um, but they were able to, you know, make those changes and really made me feel loved. And that was what got me through the first probably year and a half of my transition. Um, just having people affirm what I was feeling when I didn't pass. Um, and passability is such a double-edged sword because for a safety aspect, it's great to pass. Um, but not everybody has that it's set up to be able to pass the way I do. Um, but you know, being around those people initially when I couldn't pass, it was just, it was rough. It hurt my insides. And, um, for everybody who got something wrong, there was three people who got it right. Um, so early on in the transition, that was a lot of just, it's a lot of feelings anyways. Um, and around that time, I was seeing somebody else who one of their prerequisites for dating is being in therapy. And at the moment, I was very unreceptive to that because nobody's going to tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> but now, yes, absolutely only date people in therapy. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great prerequisite, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. I talk about my therapist multiple times a day nobody asked but i'm gonna tell you um and so that through their prerequisite i got into therapy and my therapist is now the longest relationship i've ever had um i told them that recently and i i could tell they wanted to laugh but we're also like hmm interesting um so 10 out of 10 would recommend um I got off track. You're fine. Would you say that therapy kind of helped you discover more things about yourself? I feel like there's, I'm asking this because I mean, I feel like the answer is obviously yes, mm -hmm. but there's sort of a misconception that therapy teaches you how to be better or like, mm -hmm. you know, shows you the things that you're doing wrong mm -hmm. and makes you change yourself. When my experience personally in therapy has just been like, more and more self-discovery, which then mm -hmm. leads to more work. Yes, <laughs> always. They catch you there. Yes. Like, you're never done. No. Um, it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know I also had that 
problem because mm. I was dealing with this other problem. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, were your fears about therapy initially that you were going to find out something you didn't want to know or that someone mm. was going to try and control you? You kind of mentioned that. What were your, you know, yeah. hesitations? I, I don't know what my hesitation to therapy has always been. Because when my parents split up for a while when I was young, they put me in therapy. And they should have realized something was wrong because I lied to all the therapists. And there was multiple. I would not tell the truth. And I my mom has said that I said that I know what to say to them to make them think I'm okay. And what adult thinks a child is okay who says that is my question there's a lot of things i'm like was there not a red flag on that where where were we for this um you didn't catch that i might be you know concealing something mm-hmm. a lot no. of secrets there mm. did you pick up on that no yeah. weird but you'd have to pay attention to mm-hmm. for them to do that um yeah i don't know why i've all, for so long was hesitant um i think it's Probably a lot because I had so many secrets and if I started talking to somebody about other things, maybe I'll tell them my secrets. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why I've had a hard time maintaining like friendships as an adult, Um, because that's what I do is I as long once we're not in the same physical space, I just retract within to myself and hide Um, and was like that till my mid-20s and still have a tendency to do that um yeah the closer you let people to you and the more they know about you the more they can hurt you um which i think is extremely common because everybody's been hurt by somebody um so i just i couldn't fathom letting somebody see who i was but i also i didn't like who i was so why would i let anybody else see that in the words of the great RuPaul, <laughs> if you can't love yourself, mm. how the hell are you going to love somebody else? Ain't that the tea? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I had heard that forever. Everybody's been told that and thought it was just such a line of BS. But I was also the person who convinced myself that I didn't need self-confidence and I was above it because I didn't actually have any. Um, so I just told myself, you don't need that. And I don't need to love myself to love other people. And that's probably why I treated people terribly for years. Um, I don't know why people dated me. I was the worst. I really like, I was just so, I needed attention and that was my validation. Um, so I thought if somebody was giving me attention then i must be worth something whether i'm keeping these secrets or not um and that is that's a hard one to unlearn but being able to recognize it and talk about it in depth in therapy has helped me to take steps to be better because one of the things that i'm actively trying to get through my head is that we're not our mistakes we make them and they're gonna happen but we're not less because of them we're not more because of them it just and it doesn't define us it which mm, working on that 
You are, man, I came here <laughs> thinking we were going to have a nice little chat. I would be offered cookies, I would be offered something to drink, and I was offered um, the cold hard truth. <laughs> uh, yeah. But no, I think that's, that's something that everyone is going to mm-hmm. have to come to it at some point. And, and like you said, it's one of those things you hear someone else say and you're like, yeah, okay, for other people, sure, that's probably true. But like, I'm on my own. Like, right. y'all don't understand what's going on with me. Um, it's not something that hits home until you personally get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also incredibly difficult to love yourself when you feel unsafe actually authentically being yourself. Right. If you think that others aren't going to love you if you show up authentically how are you supposed to like that's that's definitely gonna make it harder for you to see and and love yourself too so right would you say that and of course again coming out is not something that everyone is always going to be in a safe position to do right um but was it helpful in starting to the self-love journey, I guess, for lack of an uncheesy term. <laughs> yeah, it it was a starting point. And, you know, every journey has some sort of starting point. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I would not be able to get to the point I'm at now if I couldn't start there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was incredibly fortunate that I was in a place that, I could come out because when I did come out, I just moved to Tennessee. So I was still living with my parents and I was able to leave very soon after that. And was I very fortunate to be able to find housing in Nashville and have a, a nine to five job that allowed me to move. Um, which is certainly not the case for everybody. And you don't have to come out to begin that that journey to self-love if you're not in a place that that is feasible or safe. Absolutely. Um, Just your self-knowing is, I think, the hardest place or hardest person to tell Mm -hmm. because that's always going to be, you're always going to have that level of self-doubt. Like, what if this isn't for me? And I think to a certain extent, a little bit of self-doubt keeps you in check. Mm -hmm. But if you can look at that self-doubt and say, no, this absolutely is the path that I need to be on, then you've already faced down your hardest critic. Because one of the things my mom came to me with after I came out was, well, what if you figure out in five years this was a mistake? And yeah, that's... It within the realm of possibility, but is it probable? Well, here we are five years later, and I absolutely know that I am 100% on the right path, um, which is not the case for everybody. And that's part of why I have such respect for people who can who come out as non-binary and are non-binary, because they, they're in that, or many, not everybody, is in that in-between space. And that's, there's so many beautiful things in that in-between. But as humans, that's a squishy spot, and we don't like squishy spots. We want things to fit perfectly into boxes, and some things do, and that's fine. But so many things don't. That's something I talk to my therapist about a lot, actually, especially when I started facing my queerness and mm-hmm. like trying to find 
words for it. I was like, I'm kind of frustrated by the labels that we have mm -hmm. because it feels like there's no room to be anything else. Right. Like if I come out as a lesbian, but I've dated men, what does mm -hmm. that make me? Or right. like if I, you know, I don't know, just it feels like we got a lot more accepting with the millennial generation mm -hmm. of um, like, wow, we have all of these terms now. We have all of these labels, but we're not very good at letting people be more than one thing or letting right. people evolve or be on a journey where they're allowed to change their mind mm -hmm. um, or not even change their mind, but just grow in a different way, you know, be on this path for a little while and then be like, hmm, this path fits better for me right. now. Um, and that's really frustrating. It yeah. does not give people space to learn about themselves. And I just don't think that people fit in boxes, right. with defined walls and lids and all that stuff. I think that people are pretty squishy. Right. Um, to use your term, I really like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a daily term. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the next step that the queer community needs to consider taking is like, yes, it's incredible that we can find a lot of our identity in this. And mm -hmm. also we are a lot more than this. Right. And this is part of our journey, you know, not mm -hmm. like you're gay, be gay. You right. Know? Right. Um, yeah, because putting yourself in those kind of boxes just limits you to experiences. Mm -hmm. um, I've been really fortunate. I have dated a lot of different types of people. And whether they were gender nonconforming when we dated, they are now. Every single one of them. <laughs> um, which has been fascinating. Even <laughs> a couple people, I was like, no way this person is ever going to have some sort of gender journey. And yes, they're out as trans now and living their best lives. Um, so love that. Um, but the reason I was able to have those experiences and make those connections was because I didn't limit myself. Um, and I don't understand why people do. Because... Okay, yeah, you have always dated this one gender, one presentation of person. Okay, cool. Who, where, who, there's a, what is there, seven billion people now? Something like that. Um, go try. Go, go see who's out there. You never know what you're going to find. And don't be afraid of what you're going to find. Because um, that's at the core of, I think, what limits people is fear. Uh, fear of the unknown, fear of the hard work that you will continue to have to do in therapy. Um, and if you can recognize the fear for what it is and name it, there's so much power in that. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently, just two episodes completely on fear from a researcher who studies fear. And there's just she was saying there's four basic emotions and fear and anger are kind of one monster emotion. Thank you. <laughs> yes. You guys, anger is not its own thing. Right. Anger and fear are buddies. Yeah, Sorry, right. continue. That's, keep going. Yes, just a bonded pair right there. Mm -hmm. And because for so long, I thought the only emotion I could feel was happy, sad, or anger. Really, it was, at that point, was happy, depressed, and anger. Um, and the first kind of as an adult therapy I was getting was through the university I was at and his counselor. And I was like, why, why am I angry all the time? Like, why do I want to lash out? And 
it, the first ooh, probably two semesters of that were just identifying different emotions. And she gave me the whole emotions chart with the little doodles attached to them. And that was the beginning of that. And so, yeah, fear, man. It It's a it's a doozy. You hear that, folks? Visuals in therapy. <laughs> yes. Shout out to the art therapists out there. <laughs> um, kind of coming back to sort of your transition, mm -hmm. um, because, of course, you are so much more than, like, your transness. Right. Um, but sort of coming back to that experience a little bit, um, what was the transition, like, physically for you? Like, what physical changes did you start to make to feel more comfortable and kind of to achieve some gender euphoria? Mm -hmm. Just something else we've talked about on this podcast. Go back and listen to that episode with Peyton. It's great. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, so the first year and a half, two years of my transition was just wildly infuriating because I didn't feel like I was seeing any real changes. Mm -hmm. Um so I, I, there are a variety of ways to go about getting a T or testosterone prescription. And the way I did it was through Planned Parenthood. Really fortunate to have a great one here in Nashville. And um, so when I started, there was, oh, and this was only five years ago, there was less research out there about what dose of prescription trans people should be on or people taking tea. And I was at half a mill, milliliter weekly. And that's the highest dose you can be on. And I don't, I didn't feel like I was seeing any sort of changes. I didn't, because, you know, I wanted it to be three weeks in, have a full beard and a deep voice. That's really what I was looking <laughs> for. And yeah. Physical changes, I didn't see any. My sex drive went wildly through the roof, which is an extremely common response to testosterone. Um, so had to relearn quite a few things there. It was it was a doozy. Um, and it wasn't until probably two and a half years in that I started to see any sort of hair growth. Um, in the first year, my voice changed quite a bit. Um, and I really went through that squeaky teenager voice cracking phase. That was, that was fun. <laughs> Looking back, it's funny now. I remember when GK was going through that yes. when they started testosterone. And it was very funny to go to a concert with them because they couldn't <laughs> yell without their voice cracking. Right, right, <laughs> right. And voices as a trans thing, it's so fascinating how either they the voice can make you feel just completely dysphoric or completely euphoric because I and oh, your voice is what gives so many people away because we're used to male presenting people having lower voices. And for a very long time, I was very male presenting and did not have the voice to match. Um, so as I've gone through, through T over the last five years, my voice is now where I'd like it to be at a normal register. But the, the code switching of it all, and it's interesting. So, you know, you mentioned GK's voice change. Um, have you ever listened to them talk on the phone to somebody? Like been in the room while they're mm -hmm. talking on the phone to someone right. else? 
I don't think so. Their voice goes up to where it used to be. I know, and I, I, I noticed them doing it, and then I started listening and paying attention to how I talk to people on the phone, and I very much do the exact same thing. Wow. And I don't know if it's a transness thing, or is it a customer service thing? Because it, think about whenever you call a customer service line, if anybody does that anymore. Um, yeah, it's very generally higher pitched because it comes off as more approachable and friendly. And I hear myself doing it and it drives me nuts. I'm like, no, you've worked really hard for this voice. Like, let it be what it is. Um, so that through my early transition, that's one of the big things that has always really stuck out for me. Um, being more aware of how I talk to people because even pre-transition high school, I would always try to make my voice lower. I didn't notice I was doing it, but somebody pointed it out to me one day. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I absolutely do do that and continue to do it. Um, but now that my voice is low and like I've always wanted it to be, I raise it. So it's just it, that's one of the things that's really stuck out to me. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I haven't really heard a conversation about that before, but that's I would imagine probably pretty common. Um, yeah, I'm a receptionist, so I'm answering the phone all day, and I'll be talking to someone like this, and then I'll pick up the phone. Hello, how are you? Right, like it just right. jumps up in a little bright princess mm -hmm. voice, um, mm -hmm. and I and I hate it, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for different reasons, sure, of fair, course. Fair. Um, so testosterone, that's part of HRT, right? which if people don't know, stands for what? Uh, hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Both of us being like, I know what that means. Yeah. I've heard those letters. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So was that, um, when you walked into Planned Parenthood, you were like, hello, I would like some testosterone. Um, yeah. I imagine that's exactly how it went. Right. <laughs> I, it, that's not far off it. So I was able to do it through informed consent cause I was over 18. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, I, I don't even think I needed a therapist note at that point. I just said, yes, I understand what this will do to my body. I understand these things. You've talked to me about these other things. Please give me the testosterone now. Um, right. And I, I was shocked. Like we live in Tennessee and that was that easy for me to do. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know now, five years later, if it would be that easy. It sounds like it's gotten pretty significantly more difficult. Yeah. Um, Even for adults, which is, yeah. it, I, I think about this quite a bit. It's the people who didn't want to wear the masks through COVID that want to tell trans youth that they can't have any autonomy over their own body. Like they and their parents cannot make the decision for that person. Where where's that where's that connection? I thought about that a lot when Roe v. Wade was being mm -hmm. overturned because I was like, y'all are out here refusing to wear masks, saying, God damn, my body, my choice. Right. Like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, but in terms of hormones, mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is a lot of unknown there that people are like, people probably don't understand what it does mean, the, the things that you sign because you are making these informed decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not like you were just like, this is an idea. I'm just going to do this without any, 
like medical professional telling you right. what it could mean. Right. First of all, I think people don't realize that you do have to have that medical information yes. before you just jump right in. Um, but is it something, and I'm, I'm actually asking, I'm not sure, um, once you start hor- hormones that you can't kind of go back, you can't undo that. Is that true? There are certain aspects that you can't undo because you can always go off hormones. And as long as you have, oof, speaking as somebody with a uterus, as long as you have your ovaries, you can always still produce estrogen. Okay. So that once you stop testosterone, like that would kick back into its normal flow. Um, voice change and hair growth are the two big things that I know won't reverse. Um, but for the most part, yeah, a lot of changes you would see would gradually over years start to revert. Um, which is, you know, it, my, where I go back to like letting trans youth decide who they are, we tell them, you know, these things are unchangeable and a few of them are, there's other things we don't know, like the ability to reproduce. Cause one of the things that testosterone does is makes your uterus smaller, which makes it you know, less inhabitable to a parasite that wants to implant in the <laughs> uterine lining. Um, and maybe, but we don't, if some a young person is doing testosterone and then goes off of it for whatever reason, there are plenty of people who have had trans, trans men who have given birth to children. Like mm-hmm. we're seeing it, it's, I'm not gonna say it's incredibly common, um, but yeah, it's totally a thing. Um, and so, yeah, some, some things won't go back, yeah. but if we put kids in the position where they can make these decisions and try these things, then so many of them are going to be able to begin their journey to self-love so much sooner. Yeah. And if there are kids that decide that it's not for them, give them that opportunity to decide that it's not for them. Yeah. They, because if you don't give them the chance to try it, they're always going to have that question in the back of their mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fine to change your mind. You have, what's not fine is to pigeonhole yourself into one way of thinking your entire life. Because as we gather new information, we have to change our opinions. That's how we evolve. Um, so give the kids this opportunity and because no person under 18 is not undergoing mass amounts of education about this. Um, I have a friend through work, her oldest son has come out as trans and came out at 15 and they're going over the process of multiple years have as a family educated themselves and really are working to understand what these changes could mean and if this is the right path. Working with therapists, with primary care physicians, with, um, oh, who's the person for the hormones? Uh, endocrinologist? I think that's who does that. One of those doctors. So multiple medical professionals. Um, and I have never heard of a story where a youth who is actively like really pursuing hormone therapy 
is not educated and doesn't have that family support because for them to even do it, they would have to have their family on board. Um, so, you know, just give them the opportunity. Yeah. And it bears mention that, and I have not done mass amounts of research on this, Mm -hmm. but hormone blockers are not the same thing as hormone replacement therapy. Right. And there are other options out there um, Mm -hmm. for trans youth who maybe don't want to make that kind of commitment quite yet, but Mm -hmm. are ready to start trying to see what would it be like if I, you know, went on hormone blockers, kind of prolonged getting a period while I try and figure out, okay, is this for me? Do I want to um, pursue a transition? Um, You know, there, but just basically there are other options out there um, for people who even as a child are like, I don't know yet. Um, I'm still figuring it out. Um, But even beyond um, hormones and beyond, Mm -hmm. there are also a lot of gender-affirming surgeries that one can get, um, top surgery, bottom surgery. Um, But beyond all of that, there's also controlling, like, how you present Mm -hmm. um, because some things are going to be out of your control. Accessibility to a lot of things can be really difficult. Lots of stuff is not covered by insurance, um, even though it is life-saving care. (laughs) Yes, Um, yes. As we've heard. Right. Um, But can you talk a little bit about, like, even before you came out, how did you cope with the dysphoria in terms of being able to present in a way that felt comfortable for you? Right. You know, I, as a child, I was always described as a tomboy. Mm -hmm. So... I was allowed to wear those hideous camo cargo shorts and a graphic tee from Target. Like that was, I was, I was allowed to do that for 90% of the time. And it was really just special occasions that I'd have to dress better. Um, And, you know, that's not the case for everybody because I would say... No, just all through my education, it was always t-shirts and shorts or t-shirts and pants. Um, And that's what I felt comfortable in. And so I was I was lucky in that aspect. My wardrobe really didn't change after I came out. Um, But it 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 was interesting, like socially transitioning, Um, because like I said, I was in a good environment to be able to do that um but i one of the things that i have seen other trans people you know on social media whatever post old pictures of themselves compared to pictures of themselves now and the old pictures are very feminine very what you would expect from um a young female presenting person and yeah, I really don't have a ton of pictures like that. You know, graduation pictures, that stuff. Yeah, all very female presenting. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of cargo shorts for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went to a, a private school where mm-hmm. if you if you identified as female or if you were identified as female, right, right. Um, then your option was this horrendous skirt and yes. like a little little Oxford and mm-hmm. there was really nowhere to hide with that. Like right. the, the choice was very much taken away of, mm-hmm. of um, letting people figure out how they felt comfortable 
presenting themselves. Right. Um, so I can imagine it was freeing to have some cargo shorts <laughs> um, at the ready. <laughs> right. Because right. you went to a Christian private school, right? I did. Right. Um, different ones, but yeah, sure. all, right. basically my whole growing up, um, it was Christian private schools. Right. And, my older sibling did as well, so mm-hmm. I'm sure they've got stories about yes, they how do. uncomfortable that uniform was for them, which right. I think we all knew even at the time, like, not to tell their story, but it was like, this is not comfortable for you. Right. And, and there's no other option. Like, even right. I'm personally a girl with a chest and a butt, and I was getting dress coded left and right because right. of the way the uniform fit me, and that's right. not my fault. Um, right. So that alone, like, just not having options for people who have different insecurities about their body, mm-hmm. let alone about their gender. Um, mm-hmm. Like give, let the girls have some pants for the love of God. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they, they're trying to sit in seats. They're trying to pick things up off the ground. They're trying like, not to have their, their skirts looked up while they're walking up the stairs. Just yeah. give them some pants. Give, give, give the poor girls some pants and see, that's something that I had not thought about until this moment was the only you know, I, I got kicked out of Christian school in the second grade. That was not the path for me. Good for you. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. And then went into public school and being in a private school, I did not do well. I even preschool, what is that? Kindergarten, first, second. It was not, I didn't like the kids. I didn't like the uniforms. Cause yes, they had the jumper with the plaid. Not and the jumpers. Yeah, we had the jumpers. Oh man. Um, Cause you had to be in like sixth grade to be able to wear pants. So that was not gonna last. Um, and when I did have a uniform in middle school, public middle school, it was kind of a unisex middle, um, uniform. It was black pants, white collar shirt, or you got to wear your house shirt. Um, houses like yeah like because it was a huge school so you're grouped up by houses i think there were i was a bear there was golden huskies dragons and something else so like and then you had all of your classes with all the same kids so you were a bear even then i was a bear even then (laughs) i was really i I was set up for this (laughs) truthfully honestly it wasn't even a choice right and i remember loving our uniform because it was an equalizer And it was, it achieved what uniforms intend to achieve. Whereas gendered uniforms, that's what they are. They're gendered uniforms and they do not achieve that, that level playing field. Um, And one of the hardest transitions from middle school to high school was the ability to choose my own clothes. Cause now I'm like, oh God, I have to pick clothes that are going to, help me blend in with everybody else and not highlight these insecurities that I have. Mm. Um, yeah, I had, that was so much harder to deal with than anything else about high school. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> right? Yeah. That, cause that would have brought even more attention to the fact that you're dressing differently. Right. Um, wow. Cause in elementary school, it's one thing, but high school, that's really when like, 
Amber Crombie and Finch was Amber Crombie and Finch. Yeah, that was like the tight T with the like felted letters oh, and like no. the short sleeves. And being a fat kid, like I was never gonna look good in that. <laughs> it was the the skinny jeans were not the T for me, and I wish somebody had told me that sooner. If only mom jeans had come in style just a little earlier. On and I, honestly, that's probably why I got into agriculture clubs because then I could wear jeans and cowboy boots and nobody would give it a second thought mm. um, because I was going to shovel sh- sheep poop after class. <laughs> um, honestly, probably direct <laughs> correlation there. That and I got to wear my FFA t-shirts all over the place. <laughs> Makes sense. Yep. Um, as we kind of start to wrap up, just with all the hate and negativity, transphobia going on in the world always, but now in new and exciting ways we're finding mm. ways to be transphobic how are you maintaining hope and any positivity you know i think what gives me the most hope is understanding where we have come from to where we are now um one of the things i am actively trying to make sure i do is read old school queer literature and historical biographies and um a podcast i wildly recommend for anybody is um making gay history it's a podcaster who's always been in journalism playing old interviews with like the og queers that really started the movement in america um and any any queer person but any young queer person that's something i would wildly recommend um, yeah, there's going to be outdated language, of course. Um, and it's going to be, I don't know, I would say, but see, that's the thing. 50% of it is bad. And 50% of it is true queer joy. And that's something that people need to recognize is when you look back to understand where we have been to where we are now, it's not all bad. There is true queer joy and expression. And it if you just look at even like if you look at Hollywood, um, there pre Hayes Code, there was queer representation. I'm not going to say it was a lot and it wasn't high quality, but it was certainly there. And queers have always been here. People who say, oh, well, there's trans. The kids are all trans now. No, they there, there was trans kids before this. There will be trans kids after this. But now youth have that vocabulary that we didn't have growing up. And that wasn't that long ago. Um, so what keeps me hopeful is looking at that and remembering the queer joy and recognizing that your chosen family is and can be so much more and you know it's it's okay to show people these quote-unquote dirty parts of yourself that you keep hidden and are ashamed of because you know fear holds us back but shame good golly letting go of that or even even if you can't let go of it yet recognizing that it's there um because things do get better And it's so cliched to say that, but they get better when we're able to make changes and, or at least are intentional about our actions. Um, Think about it. Like, why does this thing make me feel this way? 
Or why does this person make me feel this way? Or why do I allow this person to make me feel this way? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, Ted Lasso, love that show. It's the hope that kills you. Yeah. But for me, I've really been trying to reframe that in my mind and say it's the hope that keeps you moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you look at organizations like the Mattishing Society or Daughters of Belitis, they were the first gay and lesbian organizations to try to unite the gays and lesbians. Um, and it's the hope that kept them moving forward and the hope and the drive to make that change. Um, so yeah, there is a really long way to go, but our attitudes and our perceptions of all of it are what will either make or break us as as people and as a community. Um, it's just, there there is so much hope, but you have to get, or for me, I've had to get to a point of self-love to even be able to realize that that hope does exist. Mm-hmm. Because the people who stand outside the drag shows, the people who try and pass the laws in Congress that would limit our freedom, visibility, and safety, mm-hmm. those people want us to feel afraid, mm-hmm. hopeless, and alone. Right. And I think that the single most brave and like the biggest fuck you that you can give to them is to be joyful and hopeful and proud in right. your queerness. Right. So that's a beautiful reminder that queer people have been resilient through so much throughout history. And right. I we're gonna we're gonna be resilient through anything else I think that gets thrown our way. As right. difficult and discouraging as things can feel. Uh, at different times right and what every single queer person needs to remember is that we have to lift each other up instead of tear each other down something you know i've been able to dabble in the gay male community and gosh it is some sassy you know the stereotype is that sassy man but like so many queers tear each other down because of their internalized homophobia Mm -hmm. and they don't know it's there so just every queer person lift each other up um because at the end of the day if we can't count on the rest of society to help take care of us and let us be a part then we have to make sure that we never alienate alienate each other Oh, good stuff. That's so true. Um, On a final note, is there anything that you would say to little young pre-transition Sam? Anything you would want him to hear? Yeah, first thing, I would tell that little shit to take better care of his teeth. Because they are expensive. (laughs) That's where I would start. Absolutely. Um. But I would tell myself that it's okay to be vulnerable and, you know, you don't have to be vulnerable with everybody. But once you've identified those people that are safe, like, show them who you are sooner. Don't wait years and years and let things get to a point where it the world feels like it's ending. People love you and if... You know, if you show them these parts of yourself that are you're afraid of, then 
they may be able to share parts of themselves that they're afraid of. And it's that, you know, one of the things I really over the years have thought about is that idea of me too. Like, oh, I have felt that too. Or I've had those thoughts too. Or I've had these thoughts that are similar and I've always been too afraid. Um, you know, so being the first person to open up is, it's scary and we've all been there and we've all said, no, thank you, but it, it's worth it. Mm. And, you know, take therapy seriously. <laughs> and if we, had, if I had started doing that work 10 years ago, like good golly, I would have <laughs> spaceship cars by now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it goes back to, there's always so much more to identify and to dive into. So do yourself a favor. Everybody should be in therapy. It's okay to switch therapist if the, if the drive ain't there, but like find yourself a therapist. Please, please. If you get anything from this podcast, please get a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam, I can't thank you enough for being here. I really appreciate your vulnerability today. Um, it's not an easy thing to do and I'm very honored to have gotten to talk with you. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you're doing this. It's, I, you know, I've, I've watched you over the last couple of years really develop into like a human. And, and so before that, <laughs> before that, yeah, who knows? Really questionable. Um, but, you know, just keep doing it. And it, it's there's going to be times where people shit on you. Yeah. And you just keep going. That's true. And to you out there listening Please keep going. We love you. We're so glad you chose to spend some time with us today. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Um, you're loved here. You belong here. And I can't wait to see you next time.